Brought to you by PrayLatin.com, makers of prayer cards featuring complete English phonetic renderings of Latin pronunciations. A couple of days ago, the rumor hit that Francis will resign after this coming synod in the fall. I very much doubt it, sincerely, partially because that synod is part of a full two-year process that he certainly wants to see through to the end, and it won't conclude until sometime in 2023 at the earliest, which the reporting on this does not take into account. But the other reason is simple. He's not the type to step down and relinquish his influence, not when he has the work of building the ape of the church to finish. No, I expect he'll hang on for as long as possible. I could be wrong, though, and have been wrong before, but I sincerely doubt this reporting, and I'm not going to say much more on it, save for this. If he does know that he's got a successor all lined up already, then he would. That having been said, today let's dive into the state of the church today. That what is acceptable in the church now in our time is public expressions of a vaguely Christian-sounding theology that has been rejected formally by the church and is connected with an automatic anathematization, meaning severing oneself from the faith and the church if they adhere to it, as well as intercommunion and Eucharistic sacrilege. But what is not acceptable in the church today is the faith and worship of our forebears. We have some news of uh, the Latin Mass being suppressed all but completely in another diocese that I'll go over and its implications. These themes have been consistent in the church these past few years, and one that has been really ramped up over the course of the summer of 2021. Now we see Papa Francis and his most loyal bishops pursuing the new faith of the springtime of the Church of the New Advent at full steam. They are attempting to bury the faith of our fathers. We can begin by revisiting Francis's public proclamation of Lutheran justification theology, which bears an automatic excommunication for those who adhere to it, at least according to the infallible Council of Trent. Francis's words were, quote, Do I despise the commandments? No, I observe them, but not as absolute, because I know that what justifies me is Jesus Christ. The Pope's remarks were made in answer to a self-ascribed question on whether he lives in fear that if I don't do this or that, I will go to hell. I'm quoting here from an article posted on uh, John Henry's Weston's website, which I will be referencing here more in a second. Now, for a full treatment of that topic by itself, Dr. Taylor Marshall dove into it in some detail on his channel last week and explained its fuller errors, so I'm not going to bother rehashing any of that here. The issue is worth briefly touching on because it serves as a good compare and contrast between what is acceptable in the church of the springtime of the new advent and what is not, namely... It's acceptable to reject the Council of Trent and embracing a broken justification theology that was invented out of thin air by the heresiarch himself. That's completely fine in our time, but our sacred traditions are not. This is what passes for acceptable in the church today. And Bishop Athanasius pointed out some rather obvious problems with Francis the Great and Merciful Statement, wherein he functionally embraced Lutheran theology. It contradicts the faith. I mean, obviously, right? Bishop Athanasius told John Henry Weston's website the nature of this contradiction, quote, Bishop Athanasius has responded to Pope Francis's suggestion that the Ten Commandments are not absolute, describing the Pope's words as contradictory to Scripture and following the teaching of the heresiarch Martin Luther. He highlighted two key problems with the Pope's denial of the binding nature of the Decalogue. First, that they contradict an encyclical of Pope John Paul II, and second, that they contradict the expressed teaching of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. 
He noted in no uncertain terms that Francis's statement, quote, contradicts the teaching of the church and is very much a kind of sola fide teaching of Martin Luther, end quote. The auxiliary bishop of Astania, Kazakhstan, explained that the Pope's affirmation also, quote, contradicts the encyclical Veritatis Splendor of Pope John Paul II. The bishop quoted Francis's predecessor who wrote that, quote, in the Old Testament we already find admirable witnesses of fidelity to the holy law of God, even to the point of a voluntary acceptance of death. A primary example is the story of Susanna. In reply to the two unjust judges who threatened to have her condemned to death if she refused to yield to their sinful passion, she says, I am hemmed in on every side, for if I do this thing, it is death for me, and if I do not, I shall not escape your hands. I choose not to do it and to fall into your hands, rather than to sin in the sight of the Lord. See the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 13, verses 22 to 23. Susanna, preferring to fall innocent into the hands of the judge, the late pontiff's words continue, bear witness not only to her faith and trust in God, but also to her obedience to the truth and to the absoluteness of the moral order. He, the bishop, noted that the Catechism of the Catholic Church also clearly contradicts the recent utterances of Pope Francis, teaching that Christians are always bound by the prescription of the law. Catechism entry 2072, he emphasized, states, quote, The Ten Commandments are fundamentally immutable, and they oblige always and everywhere. No one can dispense from them, end quote. Personally, I think Bishop Athanasius was being nice, and rather oversimplifying things. He could have gone to the statements of the Council of Trent and pointed out that any Catholic who embraced this concept of justification was automatically excommunicated. But I digress. Francis's statements last week have been hammered on to death, and I won't be revisiting them here further. Open acceptance of heresy in the post-Vatican II Church is nothing new, and goes back decades, and frankly goes back before Vatican II, and this is just the latest example of it. Compare that through, to, though, to the desire of the faithful to have the traditions of our forebears and the liturgy and everything that goes with it, and what has always been deemed not only Catholic but essential to Catholic life, is now less acceptable than a broken theology that is not only heretical but does not stand up to scrutiny. An example of this is the recent statement by an American bishop who issued his statement on Traditionis Custodis earlier this week and interpreted it in nearly the, the most draconian way possible. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski posted the letter on Facebook earlier this week, and I have a summary here in the full text over in my show notes over at returntotradition.org. That's the name of this podcast with a .org at the end. Skip past the Patreon pop-up since there's no paywall for my sources. Anyway, this concerns the actions of Bishop David Zubik of Pittsburgh. According to Dr. Kwasniewski, quote, Most Reverend... David Zubik's letter, dated August 20th, 2021, is a frightening sign of how Traditionis Custodis may be implemented in places where the bishop is not friendly to the traditional Latin Mass. One, the Bishop of Pittsburgh declares that there will be only one quote-unquote full-service TLM parish in the entire city, namely, the parish run by the Institute of Christ the King. Two, at other parishes, Masses will be allowed occasionally, but Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost are explicitly excluded. Three, the other sacraments. Baptism, Confirmation, Confession, the Nuptial Sacrament, Extreme Unction, will be permitted only for registered parishioners of the Institute's apostolate. 4. Worst of all, priests are forbidden to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass privately. Only priests who are deemed necessary to minister to quote-unquote groups will receive permission. This is a notorious example of the situation in which priests would be entirely within their rights before God and Holy Mother Church to disobey the letter of the law. 
Those who already say the traditional Latin Mass, perform baptisms, hear confessions, or anoint in the old rite, etc., should continue to do so. End quote. Let's zoom in on two issues here. First, that only the registered members of that institute parish will be permitted to receive the full spectrum of sacraments, meaning that you will have to identify yourself in some way to access confession. Think about that for a second, that when you go to the confessional, you'll have to be like, yes, Father, I am a member of this parish, or that somebody at the confessional will be required to make sure that you belong there. Think about that. And that priestly institute will be de facto barred from the typical works of mercy that they do. This is the second problem, not only hearing confessions of those in the custody of the state, for example, or providing extreme unction into viaticum to those who are in their final days receiving care in the various kinds of institutions that that happens in. It's just not going to happen now. That's bizarre. These priests have been sequestered away, and their evil, evil Catholic sacraments not accessible except to the people who adhere to their evil, evil Catholic theology that was deemed to not be able to coexist with the new theology and the new religion of the Vatican II ape of the Church. The other issue worth highlighting is that of the end of the private masses, and Dr. Kwasniewski goes into this more deeply on Facebook as well with this post, and it really gets to the heart of the matter, like everything else he writes. Quote, I posted yesterday about the Pittsburgh Decree. The aspect of it that disturbs me most deeply is the attempt to abolish the private Mass. The Mass, the Roman Rite, that has never ceased to be offered at whatever stage of its development, from the 4th century until today, there was not a total break even after 1969. This is now to be deemed so harmful to church unity, so dangerous to souls, that even a priest who on a given day has no other pastoral responsibility is to be forbidden its use? Even the priest who finds great spiritual nourishment in the rich Lexarandi of the TLM, who knows from experience that it unites him in a special way to the holy sacrifice of the cross, and helps him to pray fervently for the intentions of the Mass, he must be deprived of this food, this more intense union, this more intense grace of devotion, which, as we know from St. Thomas Aquinas, brings about greater fruits from the Mass. The abolition of the private Mass is something so evil I can hardly fathom it, that's what an enemy of Christ and his church would do. No one but an enemy. The only advice I can give to a priest in that situation is that he should continue to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass whenever it is possible to do so, even if he goes somewhere on retreat or is revisiting trustworthy friends and family. Or he may realize that this is a call from the Lord to continue calmly doing what he was doing before, in defiance of a manifestly unjust prohibition aware that this course of action is almost certain to result in his being sacrificed like a lamb led to the slaughter. Perhaps it is time for many priestly grains of wheat to fall into the ground and die, so that they may bear a greater fruit of holiness than collaboration with corrupt chanceries would allow. They will quickly find laity who will support them in their needs. I have many more thoughts along these lines, but they are not ripe for publication yet." End quote. And I will be eagerly awaiting his publication on this, and will bring it to you, because his, his thoughts are always deeply insightful. The abolition of private traditional Latin masses reminds me of something the late Father Malachi Martin said to Bernard Jansen back in the early 1990s. If you're only familiar with him through his Art Bell interviews, I highly recommend his talks with Bernard Jansen. They're vastly superior and go much deeper into the faith and into the state of the church than anything he did with Art Bell. But in those interviews, Father Martin described a situation where numerous priests in the 70s, 80s, and the 1990s were privately saying the traditional Latin Mass. 
and consecrating all the hosts they would need for all their Novus Ordo Masses for the entire week, and doing it in secret, obviously, because many of the older priests had serious questions about the validity of the Novus Ordo, the same questions that would eventually lead Benedict XVI to edit and change the words of consecration in the Novus Ordo to ensure its validity. Even Paul VI never attempted to abrogate the Latin Mass the way these friends of Francis are trying to. An attempt to prevent priests from saying it privately is an unjust attempt to bury the Mass, to prevent priests from learning it at all, and to make it just go away so that their new springtime of the Church of the New Advent will have no competition from Catholicism now or in the future. It's a wicked decree, but at this point we shouldn't be surprised. These are, after all, the same kinds of bishops who are okay with intercommunion like we saw in Chicago last week, and what is openly being discussed by Francis and the German bishops now. The Radtrad blogger pointed out an obvious problem with Traditionis Custodis, one that is such a clear problem that it cannot be ignored. That the Traditionis Custodis accomplishes for Francis is such a clear break from the history of the Church that it is a delegitimization of the papacies of all the popes before Paul VI, of all the preconciliar popes. Quote, Guardians of betrayal, Traditionis Custodis, is principally about power, not liturgy. It is an attempted disenfranchisement of a hub of people who have a different spiritual bent, a different view of the world, and a different desire for the future of the church than the pope does or his age of Aquarius collaborators. Their predecessors, the innovators of the 40s and 50s, began their work occupying a smaller portion than we do today of a church much more uniform in faith and worship than we have today. They achieved their work through finding the right levers of power to pull, manipulating their way through committees, bureaucracies, and clerical appointments until they could convince the 2,000 bishops of the church that a wholesale refresh was the only way to keep the church relevant. They kept underground during the papacies of Pius XI and Pius XII, while still finding ample opportunities to introduce dialogue masses and versus turbum worship, and to mention the inevitability of the mass of the future. That is the title of a book by the late Father Gerard Ellard, S.J. Nominally, Guardians of Betrayal originated out of a concern for the integrity of the Second Vatican Council and concern that its rejection would sow seeds of dissent and division within the Church. Readers of this blog will know that the mid-20th century liturgical reform had next to nothing to do with Vatican II, that it was, in fact, the independent project of the papacies of Pius XII and his protege, Paul VI, that under the Concilium it became a runaway train, and that Vatican II was used to justify the reforms through parliamentary manipulations. All the same, Traditionis Custodis makes official the conflation of the Novus Ordo with Vatican II, and the Old Mass with not Vatican II. Aside from underscoring the historical and liturgical illiteracy of its authors, Guardians of Betrayal brings about a new issue. In merging the new Mass with Vatican II, and in turn the Old Mass with not Vatican II, does not banning the Old Mass effectively sweep the pre-November 1969 Church into the dustbin, and with it the authority and prestige of the Pope's very office? End quote. And he is 100% right, because it sets a precedent of sweeping aside the acts of recent pontiffs in nearly unprecedented ways. And that should concern every bishop in the church who now wants to be pope, let alone anyone who still clings to the absurdity of the hermeneutic of continuity. It really says something when the Vatican openly embraces Luther, complete with stamps and statues of the arch-heretic, and then lectures faithful Catholics about being good Catholics, and on what the real expression of the lex orandi, lex credendi of the Roman Rite is. That's pretty rich, all things considered. 
but it's not that surprising either. Their heresy is open for the whole world to see now, and all that's missing from them is a proclamation to sin boldly and forget the sacrament. But those are my thoughts on this. What are yours? Let me know in the comments, please, and like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. As always, pray for the church, that it may defeat this ape of the church sooner rather than later. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.